Over the years, I have discovered in certain different relationships and friendships, those closer relationships to me, that there is a kind of liturgy that develops unintentionally. My best friend in college and I would have certain things that we would just say to each other again and again that intentionally elicited the same response. I would say one thing and then she would say the other thing. Or she would say the first part of it and then I would repeat back to her the other part. Usually it was about shared experiences or inside jokes that we'd pass back and forth. And for example, right now, my husband and I have a certain shared liturgy. One of us will say... Remember that time in Massachusetts when we were at that party together and we didn't even know that we would end up getting married? Or remember that first Christmas in Alabama together when we made steaks? Or because we grew up in the same era, we say, remember MC Hammer? Or remember that random U2 song? And the other person's response is always the same. The other person's response is, oh, I remember. And that's how we share this shared memory together, this liturgy of shared memories. Well, there's something about this time of year, this one-two punch of Thanksgiving and Christmas that brings back all sorts of memories. Psychiatrists and neuroscientists will say again and again that the five senses, and especially the sense of smell, are linked directly with emotional memories. When I was an actor, part of my method training played upon this scientific reality. In my classes, we would relive, intentionally relive, sights and smells and tastes and sounds um, from a certain moment in our past. And this smell, this sight, would bring up a unique reality, one that would then allow us to play an imaginary scenario on stage with a unique kind of realism. So the taste of turkey for you this week, perhaps, or pumpkin pie, or maybe the smell of the Christmas tree as it sheds its needles on the way from the car to its stand in the house, or the sound of your favorite carols, or the touch of that soft holiday sweater. These familiar senses, sights, smells, sounds, touch, they take us back, don't they? And as we go back, In our minds, nostalgia overwhelms us. And if you're like me, melancholy accompanies the nostalgia. Uh, Maybe because I realize that things are not what they used to be. We all long to go back. We long to go back to the tenderness and the innocence of childhood. Back to the soaring, invincible days of high school or college when we were king of the world. Back to the time before we said, that terrible thing that we cannot unsay. Back to a change. Um, Back to change what was a landmark decision in our lives, but we wish we had made a different choice. We want to go back. We want to go back maybe even to when we were young and in love before our marriage grew cold. This desire, this human desire to go back causes that refrain from the Beatles song in 1979 to ring and echo in my ears. Do you hear it with me? It was released as a single in 1969 and then on the Beatles' last album before they split. Get back. Get back. Get back to where you once belonged. But this nostalgia, this longing to go back to where we once belonged, it's not bad in and of itself. But our ways of trying to go back, our ways of trying to relive the past, they can be simply diabolical. 
Whether it's our childlike tendency to hide our sin and pretend like nothing is wrong. I think about that breaking a piece of china and wanting to glue it so that no one would ever have to know that it had ever been broken. I could hide the fact of my clumsiness. My clumsiness wasn't a sin, but the desire to lie and cover it up certainly was. Or in the insanity that we can get into, this insanity that will grip us. And I think this is, especially us women that are gripped by this, during the holiday season, as we try to recreate the perfect feast, the perfect present, the perfect tree, a clean home for our holiday guests. Or we see this trying to get back, these efforts at trying to get back, I see it, too, in the midlife crisis that I sometimes hear about that will bring someone to try to relive his youth, either by the seemingly harmless but financially devastating folly of buying a car he can't afford or by the horribly destructive phenomenon of upgrading to the newer, younger spouse. We try on our own. We try to get back to a place where we belong to, a place where we think we remember. And I'd say that we don't actually remember the place that we're trying to get back to because all of our earthly memories are imperfect. Hindsight makes them seem perfect. But all of our earthly memories are lived in the shadow that's cast by sin, lived in this fallen world with broken situations and sin-stained people, including me and including you. And so what if This longing, our longing to get back, was actually the longing to go way back. Back beyond our own existence. Back to the genesis of the human race. Back to the time when we were all perfect in the world. When all was perfect in the world. Back to the time when Adam and Eve were naked but not ashamed. When God himself walked with them in the cool of the morning. When we turn to scripture, the biblical story shows shows us that this perfect paradise was about so much more than beautiful sights and glorious smells and tastes. Eden is about that time when human beings were in the presence of God without shame or fear, without guilt for the real wrongs we've done, without fear of God's judgment. Well, scripture shows us that there is indeed a way back. There is hope for us in getting back to where we once belonged. Our lesson for today from Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a hint of what this way back looks like with a promise for its eventual reality. Isaiah tells us a word from the Lord, a promise that the mountain where his house is located will one day be higher than all the other mountains. As the highest, strongest, oldest, surest landmark around, this new mountain will supernaturally draw people of all nations to it. And they'll flow miraculously upstream to the top to be in unhindered fellowship and worship of God Almighty. And from him, people will learn of righteousness and somehow they will voluntarily obey. There will be lasting and eternal peace at this place, a final end to all conflict and strife. This image of a mountain is one that spoke to the Israelites, to Isaiah's first audience. The significance of a future mountain in Isaiah 2 can only be understood then in light of the landmarks of three other biblical mountains, 
which were each places where God revealed himself directly to his people. First, Israel's prophets recalled the perfection of Eden, even as we recall the seeming perfection of our past. They remembered the perfection of Eden, the place of sinlessness and righteousness, the place without death or suffering, those consequences of sin. And the prophet Ezekiel um, says that, uh, that that place was on a mountain. Hear what Ezekiel says in chapter 28 and what the Lord says through the prophet to us. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. On the day that you were created, they were, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. I, I'm amazed to think that the ancients saw Eden as being on a mountain. Because I always pictured it on a plain or by the beach or something like that. But no, they longed to go back to that mountain. But because of Adam and Eve's fall into sin, God kicked them out of the garden. And he set an angel at the gate to guard that mountain garden from our spiritual ancestors and from us so that they couldn't get back. So that's the first mountain, is the longing to get back to Eden. But then God works through two other landmark mountains to show what that way back to him would look specifically like. The second mountain is Mount Sinai, the place where God gave the law through Moses. We think it might be Jebel Musa in the Sinai Peninsula, but we don't know. But it's a place, a real physical place, where God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, where Moses brought the people of God out to worship him there. Maybe the people of God were brought out of Egypt to this mountain to worship him um, because there, in that place of need, the highest thing that they would see, the strongest thing that they would see, would be something that God had made. Instead of something made man, man, man-made, like all of those monuments and temples and pyramids on the Nile Delta, he got them out and got them away to show them his greatness, to show them that he was God, and then there, as they're humbled, to give them the law. They were not even allowed to come close to this mountain. They were not allowed to touch it. Because their sin made them unclean and in danger of being consumed and destroyed by God's holiness. But still, God let them be there in his presence. He came down, he came down in, um, in the form of the law. He revealed his will to them. He revealed what righteousness looks like. And as we heard it again, the Decalogue, as we said it again and responded to it again, our response is so different now on this side of the New Testament from that first response of the people of Israel. When Moses gave them the law and read it to them, do you know what they said? They said very confidently, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How bold. Little did they know. Little did they know. Little did they realize that they had already begun to sin and that the law would show them their sin. The law indeed um, does that for us. And as we see our sin and as God revealed sin to the people, then he also simultaneously set up this worship of him, worship that would involve sacrifice so that people could come into his presence without fear for being um, judged for a single sin that they'd committed. 
And that brings up our third mountain, because this idea of sacrificial worship was established on the third mountain, the mountain that God chose there in Jerusalem. Long after Israel entered the promised land, God chose Mount Zion as the mountain on which Solomon should build his temple. This was his dwelling place. This was the place where his worship was consolidated. This was the place where people knew their sin and acknowledged their need for a savior, acknowledged their need for atonement, acknowledged their need for a solution to their problem. And so this place speaks to us of mercy, of the mercy seat, the place where the blood of goats, of bulls and goats, um, could bring a humble Israelite um, into the presence of God. But this place, this Mount Zion, this temple, was still imperfect. It was meant to show that the sin problem is way worse than what we think. It's not just about a fib here and there or the occasional unethical practice at work. It's not about gossip. It is, but it's not about gossip, about friends behind their backs, or the disgruntled resentment for wrongs that are long gone. The sin problem is all-pervasive. And Zion, the old Zion, shows that it requires a more comprehensive and permanent solution. And so these landmarks, these holy mountains, Eden, Sinai, Zion, they mark the spiritual journey of human history. The law, old Sinai, forces us to acknowledge that we have a problem. We think we're obedient, but we're not. The law shows us our sin. And the old Zion, the temple, shows us, as it showed the Israelites, a partial solution, a temporary fix to individual sins, but also its failure to provide a permanent solution. But even in that failure, it points the way forward. It points the way to Jesus Christ. In and through him, the way, the truth, and the life. God has fulfilled his promise in Isaiah 2 to raise up a new mountain altogether. One that is the best of all three of those Old Testament mountains combined. A mountain obtained only through Jesus Christ. There, because of him, on the Mount of Calvary, on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. And because of Jesus, we now have forgiveness that's permanent. Forgiveness for sin, the root of my problem, the root of your problem. We have, too, in him the restoration to righteousness, that spontaneous unself-conscious desire to do good, to obey the law. And this begins to solve the world's problem. And we see this in Isaiah 2, promised on this mountain. And in this mountain of Jesus Christ, we too see the return to life in capital letters, Eden itself, but now in a new way, entrance into eternity with unhindered fellowship with God himself in the new Jerusalem. So this mountain of holiness, this place where God resides, this place that comes to a point in Jesus Christ himself, who is fully God and fully fully man, this place was previously fenced off from us as sinners, and now it is all ours. The doors are flung wide open. I'm going to read a couple verses from Hebrews 12 that get at this. And then I have one more image, and then I'll pray. 
The writer of the Hebrews says to those new Christians, For you have not come to what may not to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But no, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have come in Jesus Christ to the new Zion, this mountain that is also the new Sinai and the new Eden. We've come to this place because of his death and resurrection. It's ours in him because of his first coming, his first advent. And yet we long and we wait. We feel that longing and the nostalgia. We remember the things of our past. And what we're longing for is actually our sure and certain future in Christ. Realized now in him and yet still not quite fulfilled, there will be more to come when he returns. And then all wrongs will be made right, and every tear will be wiped away. So we cannot return to the perfect past that we might envision. It was never perfect to begin with. But we can return to true fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And so for that, we can say, thanks be to God.